of the things that um, we keep hearing about is how distracted our world has become, how distracted we are in this society, how it's harder for us to hold our attention, or should I say how hard it is for us to hold our kids, our kids to hold their attention, um, especially as we think about the younger generations. And we've talked about all this kind of stuff in the past. We talk about how uh, just between phones and all the stuff that's on the internet that um, our attention spans have shrunk. Um, and yes, phones probably are the main culprit because, you know, we have them with us all the time and it's easy to grab. Um, you know, the, the joke is that you used to have uh, different reading material in the bathroom, but now you don't need the reading material because you have your phone that you can carry. Never mind. Um, but as a follower of Jesus, our desire is to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus and do what he did. And yet, it's hard to do that because we're so distracted by everything that's going on around us. I mean, how do we be like Jesus when the world is bombarding us 24-7? And somebody from church just sent me... Um, a video with some information on how young kids are accessing porn on their phones and how much even church people, and it's, and it's not just men anymore, it's now more, more and more women, but it's, it's there, it's a distraction, it gets us offline. So how do we live our life in a way that we are honoring God and that we're being like Jesus when we have things that are pounding on us and distracting us. And we wonder why sometimes our world is filled with anxiety. It's because of distraction. And yet there's some of you here and some in this world that live life with this contentment and this peace in this joy and it, and it seems like no matter what's going on in the world around you you just there's just a peace around you uh it doesn't mean you don't you don't get stressed out it doesn't mean you don't get angry or any you don't experience any of those emotions it's just that there's a foundation and an underlying element of contentment and peace and so for me i'm going okay so how do you do that what is the what's going on there Last week we began talking about spiritual disciplines or practices, and if you want to be good at anything, you need to practice, and I use the illustration of Steph Curry, who is considered the best NBA basketball shooter of all time for many, but what we don't realize is that Steph Curry spends hours outside of the game honing his craft trying every shot, doing every crazy little shot, whether it's shooting off one leg or whatever. I mean, I was taught when I was playing basketball, you, you square up both feet on the ground and you just go up and shoot. Steph is practicing everything but that because he wants to shoot everything but that during the game. Not that he just wants to be fancy, but because he's trying to win and that's the best way to do things. And so if that's true for skills... For us to be better at any other area of life, wouldn't that be the same for us as followers of Jesus? Wouldn't it be important for us to practice some things about our faith outside of before we even get into the world out there? 
So we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines today, and Dallas Willard, who has written a book, The Spirit of Disciplines, it's been around a while, and again, um, if you want to dive deep into spiritual disciplines, go after Dallas Willard, um, but he talks about there are two different categories of spiritual disciplines. The first category is the disciplines of abstinence. These are simply disciplines where we abstain from something in order to create more space for God. So some examples of what disciplines of abstinence might be is like solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, sacrifice. Some of these words we probably don't use anymore in our culture, but uh, Dallas wrote this back book probably about 30-some years ago, but... Um, all of these are things that we abstain. And so if we're talking solitude, that means we abstain from being around people. If you're an introvert like me, it's like, I do that anyways because I just know. But if, and, but if you're an extrovert, you're probably like, yeah, I don't know if I want to be without people. But we all need to have times where we're alone. Silence, where we get rid of the phones and the distractions of whatever is going on. And we, we are in a place of silence. Fasting, we know that's, that's food, where we give up food for a time. All of these are giving up something, especially if that something maybe has gotten control of us. I mean, this is where fasting or abstinence or abstaining from something comes really into play in a big way, is that there's something that's gotten a hold of us like, if food has gotten a hold of you, fasting is a good way to unhitch that. Or if spending has gotten a hold of you. I mean, if you, you just, you've gone hog wild and, and credit card debt and all that kind of frugality or, you know, just stop spending. I, I'm not going to spend. You, you abstain from that. Just some examples. The other type of category for spiritual practices or disciplines is disciplines of engagement. This is where we engage in something. So as the opposite of abstaining, we engage. Willer says that disciplines of abstinence must be counterbalanced and supplemented by the disciplines of engagement. Abstinence engage, and engagement are the breathing out and breathing in of our spiritual lives. We need both. It's just like when we breathe, we need to do both, right? It, if you're going to take in, you have to take out. As I was preparing this, I remembered a little something that happened to me when I was a kid. I'm not so proud of this, but it's really... Anyways, I was taking swimming lessons. I don't know. I was probably 8, 9, or 10, somewhere like that, and in the swimming pool. And we were learning just the basic, simple stroke. And of course, I kind of knew how to do that, you know, but, you know, I was keeping my head up and flailing all over like any kid would do. And so they were teaching us properly how to do that. And one of the things they taught you is stick your head down. You, you know, you get more, more stream, air stream. And then, and then when you stroke, you lift your head up and you breathe in. You can even take a couple strokes. But then you lift your head, breathe in. So we got in the pool and off we went across. And so I'm, breathe in. Breathe in. Breathe in. I got to the other side and I couldn't breathe in anymore. I didn't realize you were supposed to breathe out when your face was down in the water. I had been taught when you go underwater, you hold your breath. 
And so that's what I did. And, you know, thankfully my uh, swimming teacher could tell that something wasn't wonky because my face was all out of whack and all that kind of stuff and said, oh, no, no, Brad, when, you're, when your face is underwater, breathe out. It's okay, you can do that. It's like, oh, I get it. But that's a silly illustration of what we need to do physically, but it's what we also need to do spiritually, meaning let's do not only disciplines where we abstain, but let's engage. And here's some example of engagement disciplines. Bible study, worship, celebration, gotta love that one, service, love that one too, prayer, (laughs) fellowship, confession, submission. These are all where we're engaging something. And so then again, the, the disciplines of abstinence counteract our tendency to, to sin, that, that we're sinning, like sins of commission, sins that we are, are doing. So like, um, like I mentioned earlier, pornography, sins of abstinence, that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm doing intentionally. Well, now you abstain, and so you, you're going to stop. These engagement disciplines are more of omission, things that I've stopped doing or am not doing for the kingdom of God. So we need, in order to build up our spiritual life, both disciplines of engagement and abstinence. Now, to help us to see where maybe this might show up in Scripture is, I'm going to throw out a couple of verses, Romans 12 one and two. Here's what Paul says. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, abstinence, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, engagement. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, abstinence. Okay, you're not gonna you're gonna abstain from conforming to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is engagement. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you see how even Paul there has both just this picture of abstinence and engagement, disciplines where we are doing both. And the cool thing here, according to Paul, is if we're doing this kind of thing, we'll be able to test and approve God's will. How cool is that, right? That's pretty cool, Brad. If I abstain from the things that distract me from God and intentionally engage in God, I can learn and know God's will. Hebrews 12, similar, says this in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off abstinence, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, And let us run engagement with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, engagement, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning and shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Throw off. Yes, we need to throw off, abstain from sin, but also everything that hinders 
even some of our good desires can hinder us from our relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what we talked about this last winter in our series, The Great Deception. And Matthew talked about how sometimes our good desires can get in the way. They can end up being bad desires. So the writer to the Hebrews here, this letter says, throw off, abstain, not only sin, but maybe some of those good desires that are hindering me from my walk with Jesus Christ. Because we want to be with Jesus, we want to be like Jesus, and we want to do what Jesus did. So today we're going to talk about two spiritual practices of abstinence, and that's silence and solitude. In the book of Luke, in the beginning in chapter 4 and 5, Jesus is just beginning his ministry, and he's choosing his disciples, and he's healing people, and doing all this crazy stuff, and we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, it says this, at sunset, the people brought Jesus, all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, um, notice here that even though all this stuff is going on, Jesus withdrew to lonely places to pray. Even in the midst of all this ministry, it was important for Jesus to get away, to go and be with other or by himself with the Father. Luke 4.40 says this, At sunset people brought Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and laying his hands on each one of them healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. And the people were looking for him. And here's the crazy thing. He's doing this ministry. It's nighttime. We don't know how late. And yet early in the morning, Jesus gets up to get away. The people wanted Jesus to stay. But Jesus said this, no, I can't stay because I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that's why I was sent. Jesus knew his purpose. And he stayed true to his purpose by often going to lonely places and being with his father. Now, the wilderness, or this lonely place, because the Greek word that comes across as as lonely place or solitary place is a word that can also be translated as wilderness. For the Hebrew people, the wilderness was a place where God spoke. This begins in the story in Genesis 16. This is the story of Abram and Sarai and their maidservant Hagar. We've heard this story many times. Abram and Sarai have no kids. And yep, Abram's supposed to be the father of a great nation. And they're in their 90s, so it's not going to happen. And so the idea comes that um, 
Sarai wants to give Hagar to Abram as a, as a wife. And I'm going to just read it right out of here because it's a little longer and I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but this is Genesis 16. Now listen to the story and see what happens here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went to Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Gotta love this relationship. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered in multitude. Jumping down to verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Now in this passage, the word wilderness, the Hebrew word is midbar, which means wilderness, but also can mean mouth as an organ of speech. So that midbar can take on either form. It can be wilderness or a place of speech. The root word is dabar. Well, I didn't put that on there. Sorry. Trust me. It's D-A-W-B-A-R, and it means to speak or declare or to promise. So for the Hebrew people, the wilderness became known as a place where God speaks. And here, in the story of Hagar, is the picture of God speaking, as represented by the angel of the Lord in this story, speaking to Hagar, and he speaks to her with a question. Where have you come, and where are you going? For Hagar, she could answer the first part of the question. I'm fleeing my mistress. I'm running away. My life is terrible right now, so I'm getting out of there, and I'm running away. And she ran into the wilderness, but Sarah, or Hagar could not answer the second question, which is, Where are you going? Metaphorically, for the Hebrew people, the wilderness then is a place where you wrestle with this question. It's a place where you go and you go, here's where I come from, but I have no idea where I'm going. 
And you see, this is metaphorically for us why the wilderness is so important on our journey, or the lonely place, or the solitude place, because it is in the solitude that we get an answer to the second part of this question. You see, all of us can answer the first part. Hey, this, this is where I've come from. But some of us may not know where we are going for whatever reason. It is in the solitude or in the wilderness that we hear the answer to that question. The crazy thing about this story of Hagar, we just flipped me the first time I really grabbed onto this, is that the angel of the Lord basically says, go back to your place of pain and submit. The angel of the Lord doesn't rescue her from the bad stuff. Doesn't take her out of the bad stuff. He just says, go back and submit. And what does Sarai do? She says, you are the God who sees. And for Sarai, or for Hagar, that made all the difference in the world. Circumstances didn't change, but God sees me. Sometimes we're so busy, we're so distracted, we don't have any idea whether God sees me or not. And we need to get into the wilderness, the lonely place, the solitude place, to be silent and allow God to speak, or maybe to allow ourselves to listen to God who's already speaking, so that we may know that He sees us. God sees you. No matter how good or how bad your situation is, God sees you. So silence and solitude is about going into the wilderness. Jesus withdrew into the wilderness. We know that he did for the first 40 days of his ministry, but then he often withdrew afterwards. Jesus knew his purpose. It didn't change his circumstance, but he knew his purpose and direction. And so for us, you have Hagar running into the wilderness out of pain and agony. And you have Jesus intentionally going into the wilderness to be with God. So my question for you is, or my statement first is, all of us will end up in the wilderness at some time, if you haven't already. You'll all end up to that place where you're going, God, I know where I come from, but I have no idea where I'm going. The question is, Do you wait until it's so bad that you're running into the wilderness and falling on your knees, crying out, help? Or do you be like Jesus and intentionally go into the wilderness, the place of silence and solitude, on a regular basis? Again, this may not change your circumstances, but at least you will know that you are seen. And trust me, 
If you're in the silence and the solitude, you can hear the Spirit of God speak, and He will instruct you. He will guide you. So how are you going to go into the wilderness? So how do we do silence and solitude? Um, First thing is this. Identify a time and a place that works for you. Try to figure out a place that works for you that, that can be kind of your picture of where that looks like. In our house right now, you go down to the lower level, by the screen door, I have my chair, I have my table, I have a candle, I have a place to put my coffee because that's really important. Um, and that's, that's my place. It's crazy because it has, it's developed this thing that when I go sit in that chair, it's just like, I'm home. There's nothing fancy about the chair. There's nothing fancy about the place. But because it's my habit of going there to be with God, it's developed that. So identify a time and a place that works for you. Set modest goals. I mean, if you're a beginner at this, start with five minutes. Five minutes of sitting in silence and in solitude. If you've been around and doing it for a while, well, make it longer. Stretch yourself. Put away all distractions. Um, put your phone in a different room. Turn your phone off and put it in another room. If, if you like reading the Bible on your phone, let me suggest not to do that because then your phone's right there and it's easy to get distracted. Don't even use... The phone on your tablet. I, I've got a phone on my tablet, or Bible on my tablet and my phone, and I use it, but in my quiet time, I use my Bible Bible. Be comfortable. Um, sit. Lay down. Go for a walk. Whatever works for you. All of us are different, so you don't do this quiet time, the way I do it. Do it the way it works for you. And if the best way for you to do a quiet time is to walk out your door and go for a 15-minute walk all by yourself, then do it. And if you need a little silence along with a nap, do it. Rest. Relax. Focus on Jesus. Just start thinking about Jesus. In the silence and in the solitude, just think about Jesus. And as you're thinking about Jesus, maybe start just expressing words of adoration and gratitude. Your mind's going to run crazy when you're starting. It's going to go off and you're going to start thinking about all the things you have to do on the day, during the day. If, if that's a problem, steer yourself back. Start focusing on Jesus. Maybe if what you need, have a piece of paper and a pen. Just write those things down. Get them off. Get them there so you, so you remember. There's a lot of practical things to do. But focus on Jesus. Our main goal is to be with Jesus. 
Because remember, as a disciple, we want to be with Jesus, we want to be like Jesus, and we want to do what he does. And we can't be like Jesus and do what he does if we're not with Jesus to get to know him. And silence and solitude is a place where I set time aside to be with Jesus. This week, I want us to practice silence and solitude. So at the end of the service, the ushers have these sheets of paper, which has all of these instructions, how to, only in a little more detail. I want you to take this home. And I want you to, if you don't do it, practice. Take some time intentionally. I want to encourage you three or four times where you just set some time aside for you to be silent and alone, where you're focusing on Jesus. Be intentional. Practice. And if you get away from it, if you do it the first time and you feel like, oh, that was a mess, <laughs> my mind was all over, that's okay. It's so, don't, don't get worried about, this is not about performance, this is practice. This is just do it. Try it. Take the time. Families, uh, parents, take this and make it work for your kids and teach your kids how to just take some time to focus in on Jesus, some quiet time to focus in Jesus. Do it as a family where maybe you, you're, you're all meet together and say, hey, here's what we're going to do, and we're going to do it for five minutes together, so we're all going to go to different parts of the room. We're going to be silent, alone, and we're going to focus on Jesus and teach them how to do it. So, <clears throat> because this is a practice, we're going to practice. Are you ready? So everyone wants to do. We're going to take one minute. And I want you to be silent. All I want you to do is just get comfortable. Focus on Jesus. And, you know, we, we teach our kids to pray with their hands closed and their eyes folded because we don't want them to get distracted. That's why we teach them that. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to have your eyes closed or eyes closed and your hands folded. That's so that kids wouldn't get distracted. So if you need your eyes closed so that you're not distracted, then close your eyes. Whatever you can do to be comfortable and not be distracted. I'm going to set my timer here for one minute. And I want us to just focus on Jesus. Do whatever you can to focus on Jesus and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit into this time, and then we'll start. Father, thank you for the fact that your Spirit lives inside of us. So I ask, as we take this one minute of silence, that your Spirit would speak to each one of us with the words that each one of us needs to hear. In Jesus' name.